Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome all truth seekers from across the globe. This is Reverend Karen L. Heasley from the Spiritual Path Church of Newcastle, Pennsylvania in the United States. Our truth seeker show covers a variety of subjects from angels to afterlife communication to parapsychology to spiritualism to near-death experiences, meditation, and a number of other truth-seeking topics. We are happy you have chosen to join us for this episode and hope you find it informative and enjoyable. Today's guest is Dr. Jan Holden. In this program, Dr. Holden will report on both research findings and personal and professional experiences with after-death communication, the spontaneous or facilitated experience of direct contact with a deceased person with whom one has a personal relationship. For the research person portion, excuse me, he will review findings from the 35 studies of spontaneous after-death communication that were published between 1894 and 2006, involving over 50,000 people from around the world, as well as a 2011 study in Australia. She will also describe practice of induced after-death communication, a technique to facilitate a client's after-death communication during a counseling session, including a study she and her research team recently completed on the effects of induced after-death communication on grief. She will illustrate both of these topics with her own spontaneous and facilitated experiences and those of others who have been her counseling clients or research participants. Good morning, Jan. It's a pleasure to have you back with us. Good morning, Karen. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, And if people don't know, she was on our December 17th show, but we had some technical difficulties. So now we invited her back to start the show again because she's very interesting and has a lot to share with our truth seekers out there. So let's start with telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I grew up in the Chicago area, and I've always been interested in, um, I guess, what I now call transpersonal phenomena, uh, experiences and levels of development that transcend the usual personal limits of space, time, or identity. So they include things like near-death experiences, after-death communication, mediumship, and past life memories, and so forth. So um, when I was doing my doctoral dissertation for my counseling degree, um, I 
actually started on five different projects, all of which aborted at one point, except for the final one, which happened to be on something related to near-death experiences. That was the first time that I'd done my own research related to it. And, you know, a lot of times when someone does a dissertation, after it's all over, they're just really sick of the topic and they don't want to um, deal with it anymore. But I was just the opposite. I was um, enthralled. And that was in uh, the the mid-1980s. And here I am 30 years later still researching these phenomena. Well, it's a fascinating uh, topic to research. It's always something new you find. Wouldn't you, wouldn't mm-hmm. you agree with that? Absolutely, yes. And and an example is the discovery of spontaneous mediumship as a near-death experience after effect. And um, I can talk about that at some point if you're if you're interested. No, you can talk about it now. That's fine. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I guess it it would be smart to start with just what is after death communication and yeah, how does it, it differ? Yeah, differ from mediumship. So after death communication is the experience of contact with a, a physically deceased entity. So it might be a person or it might be an animal. Some people have after-death communication experiences with animals. And um, the, the experience, uh, as I'll, I'll talk about in some detail later, uh, is almost always uh, beneficial to the person who has it. So spontaneous means that it's unintentional and unanticipated and uh, we, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, there is a, a technique to facilitate these experiences in counseling um, that was developed by uh, Chicago psychologist Alan Botkin, and uh, I'm doing a study on that right now. Um, and how? And so there's spontaneous after-death communication induced or facilitated after-death communication. And then there's the experience of mediumship, which is when a person has communication with a deceased person or animal, and uh, but it's not someone they know. In, in after-death communication, there's the, the communication is for the, the living person who's having the experience. In mediumship, the person having the experience of communication is a medium of communication between the deceased, physically deceased person and another living person. And the purpose of the communication is for the medium to convey a message from the deceased to the living. So, um, of course, uh, what people, most people have heard about is intentional mediumship, which is where someone who usually um, has a, a facility for this kind of communication um, does sittings. Uh, people come in and want to hear from a deceased loved one, and the medium um, serves, again, as a medium of communication. Um, but uh, something that uh, my research team and I discovered uh, is an after-effect of near-death experiences, and again, a little diversion, that a near-death experience is a, a special state of consciousness that occurs usually during a close brush with death. 
and the person may or may not actually be physically dead, and research shows that the experience is the same whether they are or not, but the person has an experience of, um, of exquisite consciousness at a time when you would expect them to be unconscious, and they um, usually uh, perceive the material world from a, a position outside their physical body and or go to transmaterial um, domains and communicate with, um, again, deceased uh, loved ones and or spiritual or religious entities. And when people have near-death experiences, which sometimes, as I said, can include after-death communication with a deceased loved one, after the NDE, people have a whole host of after-effects. And a lot has been written and studied about these for the last 30 years, but only about three years ago did my team really uh, focus on this phenomenon where um, after the NDE, people started to um, be spontaneously visited by deceased entities wanting the NDE or to communicate a message to a living person. And um, sometimes the deceased entity was known to the medium, to the near-death experiencer, but sometimes not. Sometimes these were st total strangers to the NDE -er who would just show up and say, you know, I really need you to contact my mother or my sister or whatever and convey this message to them. And the, the NDE -er might or might not know this other person. So it um, represented some major challenges, uh, at least in some cases. And so we did a study to um, investigate the extent to which people, near-death experiencers, have this experience. And what we found was that prior to their NDEs, about, I think, 12% of people said that they had had a spontaneous mediumship experience. But after their first NDE, it went up to over 50%. So the NDE seemed to, as Aldous Huxley said, open the doors of perception of the transpersonal domain, and people started to be visited uninvited by um, deceased entities wanting the NDE -er to convey a message to another living person. So um, we found that um, that for most people, they they manage these experiences okay, um, but for a few, for a minority of people, the experiences were very um, unsettling and um, and at first unmanageable. And um, so we uh, have. Uh, presented on this at the International Association for Near-Death Studies 2017 uh, conference, and that DVD is now available if somebody wants to buy it. Uh, you go to the IANDS.com website and uh, find your way to the, the conference DVDs. And uh, Bill Taylor, a near-death experiencer, and Janie Thompson, a near-death experiencer, both talk about their NDEs and their after-effects with a particular focus on their spontaneous mediumship experiences and, and how they, what the challenges of them were and how they managed them. So uh, that brings up something that I will share. Because mm -hmm. um, when I was five, 
I had a near-death experience. <clears throat> and so when I came back, I always look at it now um, that the veil may be opened up from the other side and I came back here. So tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, so then I was visited by spirits from the other side when I was mm-hmm. five. Mm-hmm. And they would say things to me or know things, tell me things. And I, and I used to say to my parents, and they would come in my room, and my, I'd say to my parents, get them out of my room. And mm-hmm. my father would roll his eyes, and I said, he said, I told you not to talk about that anymore. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, because when you're that, I mean, that happened in, 19, um, I don't know, 1957 or so. And so, you know, people didn't talk about those things. So That's my right. parents... They were very, um, very good to me. Also, I have to say that my grandmother was a medium. She really was. Mm -hmm. So my father grew up with that. So he understood Mm -hmm. it, you know, Mm -hmm. but they never talked about it because they were really strict Catholics. So you don't talk about those things, you know. But would you say that's part of the spontaneous for me at five, knowing that the spirit connection was around me? Absolutely. And what you called the the thinning of the veil, I call the yes. opening of the doors of perception. It's the same process. And uh, it sounds like in your case, you were visited and they would tell you things that maybe were of relevance to you. And it doesn't sound like they asked you to convey messages to other people. But this is just an example of how all these phenomena are kind of related to each other. You know, there's the spontaneous experience of communication with um, the deceased. Um, it's a, it's, and it's not exactly after-death communication in the sense that that usually refers to a deceased loved one appearing in order right. to provide comfort and that sort of right. thing. But you were getting um, visits from a lot of entities, but not not for the purpose of conveying messages. So they're just all these different um, related kinds of experiences that are just a little bit different from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that because, like you said, I, I didn't know what was going on at five years old. But the yeah. thing about it, I was never afraid, though, Jan. I was hmm. I was never, ever afraid. No. Yes. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Well, and, and I think that's a really important point, Karen, because... These uh, these kinds of experiences, the vast majority of them are at not at all frightening to people. They seem very natural and organic. And the media has portrayed these kinds of experiences, you know, with music, you know, yeah. that sort of thing yeah. that has created a false impression that they are spooky or scary and they they really are not they when when people experience them both spontaneously and facilitated they just feel very natural and organic correct so i'm glad you clarified that for me because i i've lived with that all since five years old but then you know Mm -hmm. it it came to pass Mm -hmm. that i knew there was a purpose that i had to connect the two worlds in some way yeah yeah and here you are and here I am, see? <laughs> That's good. Um, uh-huh. I, um, I, I'd like you to talk about the history um, of AD, uh, ADCs. Okay. 
Yeah, After Death Communication, ADC. So as you mentioned, my uh, former doctoral student, now Dr. Jenny Streithorn, did her dissertation on um, a, a systematic review of all research that had ever been published on ADC from the first study she could find in 1894 through 2006. And she did this research, um, you know, back in uh, 2007, 2008. And it involved over 50,000 people from, um, I think, 26 different countries. So it really is a very comprehensive uh, study of uh, the results of all these um, studies. And so what she found was that about one-third of people report experiencing ADC sometime in their lives. So that's a large minority of people who've had this experience, but I don't think that that fact is really widely known, like in, in U.S. culture, certainly it isn't. But it's a, a really quite a common um, experience. Um, both bereaved people and non-bereaved experience it, but uh, bereaved people do experience it more, and um, about three-fourths of people who are bereaved experience ADC within one year of the death of a loved one. Um, it, one of the kind of curious things she found was there were a couple of studies where the researchers asked the um, bereaved people uh, at three different points, like let's say three months, six months, and a year after the death of the loved one, ask them the same question, have you heard from or had communication with your deceased loved one? And an interesting phenomenon in both of these studies, um, people like at three months, 80% of people said yes. Six months, it dropped down to like 65% of people. At a year, it dropped down to 50%. And so these they weren't asked, have you heard from the pe person since the last time I talked with you? They said, have you heard from them since their death? And so people who said yes after three months, some of them said no after a year. So the experience... You know, there are a lot of possible reasons why this might happen, um, including that maybe the person just um, digested the experience and didn't really remember it the same way, you know, we digested dinner from last night and don't have to really think, you know, about what did yeah. I actually eat for dinner last night. Um, mm -hmm. There's also the possibility that they, um, that our, because our culture doesn't prepare us for these experiences, people sometimes erroneously think that they're somehow related to a mental disorder and that there, all the research uh, indicates no relationship between this experience and mental disorder. Um, but, and, and then sometimes people have religious um, objections to uh, having the experience because they perceive the Bible to prohibit the experience. And so, um, and so it, there are a lot of possible reasons why, but it's just kind of an interesting um, phenomenon. Um, we also found that both sexes report it, but women more than men. People of all ages report it, with older people perhaps slightly more, which makes more sense because the older you are, the more dead people you know. So the greater Correct. chance of 
yeah, of them coming to visit. And mm-hmm. um, people of all nationalities, um, people from ADC-affirming cultures do report them more, but we don't know whether they actually experience them more or just feel safer to report them. And people of all ethnicities, um, all education levels, all income levels, all religious affiliations and, and practices, all physical conditions, people have these experiences when they're in perfect health. They also often have them on their deathbeds and see deceased loved ones who uh, seem to be appearing to reassure the person about the transition they're about to make and, and accompany them in that transition. And again, people, no matter what their mental condition, and um, and just to reemphasize that there's no evidence that ADC alone indicates psychological disorder or mental illness. And people usually find these experiences to be very beneficial. Now, the experience itself can take any of a number of forms. So there are um, experiences of just a sense of presence without any specific sensory information or sensory experience. So it's just the, the very definite sense that my deceased mother is, um, is here and without seeing, hearing anything like that. Um, and then there are the sensory experiences where the, the living person might see the deceased person either in their mind's eye or mm-hmm. in the phys- actual physical environment, and they might the person might appear um, translucent or they might appear just like another living person. Um, and uh, sometimes people hear the deceased person uh, again either in their mind's ear or they might hear it like they would hear anything out in the physical environment. Um, they might smell something associated like a favorite perfume or a, a um, signature cigar smoke smell um, of the deceased person. Uh, they might feel the touch of the deceased person. Um, and they also, there are what are called symbolic ADCs where the per, the deceased person themselves doesn't appear, but, or, um, yeah, but... Um, something happens in the environment that seems just so uh, statistically improbable but highly um, symbolic of the deceased person. So, for example, uh, one man, middle of winter, walked out of the front door of his house on the first anniversary of his mother's death, and she loved irises. And his, mm-hmm. the irises in his uh, near his front door were blooming, and no irises anywhere else that he could see were blooming. This wasn't the season for irises to grow. So it's very improbable, but just very, you know, the date and the flower and all that just were very convincing to him that this was a message from his mother. And um, these can involve like butterflies or birds or um, pennies that... um, have some particular significance in in people's relationship or uh, even electronic devices. Uh, There's a famous skeptic of transpersonal phenomena 
who on his wedding day when his wife was um, pulled him into the house, they were getting married in their backyard, and was just telling him how much she missed her, I think it was deceased, her grandfather who had helped to raise her, and of course he was deceased. And as they were talking, they heard music from the back of the house, and they went back, and in a drawer was a transistor radio that they had received uh, his his um, some of his effects a few weeks before that included this transistor radio, and nothing that uh, Michael Shermer could do to get this radio working would work until it spontaneously began playing on their wedding day when she had pulled Michael into the house to tell him just how much, very much she missed her grandfather and wished he were there at the wedding. So um, there are these um, electronic device uh, ones, including telephone calls from the dead, uh, which is the subject of a book by Callum Cooper um, in which he uh, collected uh, cases of this type. So um, yeah, so it the, so ADCs can take a number of forms, and uh, and when they occur, the the effects people describe them as elating and comforting, and uh, the the most common message that the uh, the deceased person or one gal, Michelle Knight, who did a study of um, ADCers in Sydney, Australia, she. Uh, doesn't call them deceased persons. She calls them the disembodied. Um, yes, I saw the, that. Yes. Yeah. So the um, the the message that the disembodied seem to be wanting to convey is that they're all right and that they still um, exist and they still are um, aware of the living person and um, and concerned about and care about and love the living person. So <clears throat> these these experiences, uh, I, when I lecture on this I, and talk about grief, I say that grief, can, in my view, consists of three questions. One is where and how is the disembodied person? Another is how am I supposed to go on living without them? And the third is what is our relationship now? Are we you know, are we still in a relationship? Will I ever see them again? And after death communication answers two of those questions, people, the experience feels um, for most people, most of the time, absolutely real. And the the living person is comforted that the, the disembodied person still exists and in what a state of well-being. Most often, the disembodied person appears in the prime of their life, and so they look healthy and happy, and um, and then convey, you know, their love and also their awareness of uh, of the living person, and that that the relationship continues even though the living person may not detect it from moment to moment in their life. And then, of course, there's the reassurance that that when the living person dies, they'll be reunited with the disembodied person. So it brings a lot of hope and and reassurance in that way as well. Uh, I'm going to, you went through a lot of things, and I'm going to go back to um, 
when you deal with clients and you do this um, after-death communication with them, with grief, uh, I'm sure that's uh-huh. what you're dealing with, tell me about some clients, you know, due to their um, religious convictions that they are fearful of that. You understand what I mean? Yes. Fearful of opening a door to having an after uh, death communication with somebody that may have passed. And you, you did something with that, some type of research you did with uh, you that's, know, the that's Bible right. was that's involved right. with that? Yes. Yeah, back, uh, I, let me, I'll tell you a, a little a, abbreviated okay. long version of this. No, go ahead. Back uh, in around 1990, I attended a workshop on um, cults and uh, the the Long story short, the question came up, uh, or someone made the statements that near-death experiences were of the devil. And this completely took me aback because I'd been studying them for about five years at that point, and nothing about them seemed to be of the devil in my mind. So um, later in the workshop, uh, I asked a minister who I'd never met him before, but I just really liked him, and, and I asked him, um, what he thought of that statement. And he said, well, you know, I'm not a big like Bible thumper, but he said, actually, in this case, the Bible provides a litmus test of what is and is not of the Holy Spirit. And I, I now know, I didn't at the time, but I now know this uh, passage from Galatians. And in it, St. Paul said, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he ended the passage saying, against such there is no law. So what he meant was, when a phenomenon yields these things, it is unequivocally of the Holy Spirit, and there's just no um, doubting it. So, um, uh, however, earlier in that same passage, one of the things that St. Paul says is not of the Holy Spirit, is consorting with the dead. So we have this kind of contradictory situation. Um, Consorting with the dead is of the devil, but after death communication yields the fruits, seems to yield the fruits of the Spirit. And, um, And so my research team and I actually did a study of this. We, it was an online survey, and we didn't tell people that this had to do with religion or belief. Oh, and let me jump back. In our study of induced after-death communication, I did have, we did have a couple of clients who started to have an after-death communication experience and then opened their eyes and said, I can't go on with this, and then explained that their religion prohibited um, this kind of experience. And so that's when, you know, I was again mystified because after death communication, clearly from all these studies all around the world, 50,000 people, um, there was no indication that these experiences are quote unquote of the devil. So, so we did this online survey. We didn't mention anything about the Bible or the fruits of the Spirit or anything like that. We just asked people, have you had an after-death communication, one, one or more? And if so, if you've only had one, describe it. Or if you've had more than one, choose the one that for you has been most impactful for whatever reason and describe it. And then with that experience in mind, please answer these questions. What effect did this experience have on your sense of love? 
on your sense of joy, on your sense of peace, patience, kindness, good, all, all the fruits of the Spirit. And if, they, if the person said, they, they could say that it either strongly decreased it or decreased it or didn't have any effect or increased or strongly increased. If they said that it increased, if they said any change, either decrease or increase, we ask them to explain the nature of the change. And what we found was that um, the vast majority of people's, we I think we had over 180 participants in this study, and the vast majority of their responses involved either no change or an increase in the fruit. And some of their responses, uh, if, they, you know, if, they asked, if they wrote um, the nature of the change, some of their narratives were so touching. I was putting the finishing touches on this presentation while I was waiting at the airport to be picked up uh, for the 2017 IONS conference. And I'm sitting there in the airport um, finish transferring these narratives and crying because they were just so touching. And so, um, so only 0.3% of the experiences involved any lasting decrease in a fruit. And even then, the, like one person said, the experience made me even more anxious to get out of this hellhole of life. Well, somebody who says that sounds like they're depressed. So there's something besides the ADC that's going on there. You know, it wasn't the ADC yeah. itself that that um, created the distress. And there was one other person who was visited um, uninvited repeatedly by her deceased loved one, and she felt kind of plagued. Well, that's a person who doesn't know, understandably, doesn't know yet how to set limits with the disembodied, which is something that spontaneous mediumship experiencers often have to learn how to do because the Correct. disembodied will appear, you know, in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep and so forth. Mm-hmm. You just have to set limits. So these these experiences are overwhelmingly, they overwhelmingly pass the litmus test of um St. Paul's criteria for phenomena that arise from the Holy Spirit. So, uh, so I think we've got some talking to do with, um, especially conservative, religious, um, and to differentiate that consorting with the dead is what they're talking about. There is conjuring up spirits to use them to like cast spells and have some kind of influence in life and and more power in life. That's not what ADCs are. They are experiences of communication with loved ones for the purpose of um, answering those questions of grief. And they they yield um, comfort and and the fruits of the Spirit. That's true. I find that fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. And also, before I forget, because I will... Is there some type of link about uh, a fact sheet about ADCs that? Yes. Um, could you tell yes, us a little I'm, bit I'm, about that? 
You bet. Well, actually, a lot of what I've been saying is summarized on this fact sheet. It's a one-page on both sides. It's a summary of uh, Jenny Streithorn's uh, dissertation findings. And um, another thing that is on that sheet, uh, we do make reference to induced after-death communication. And uh, after Jenny finished her study, one day I said to her, you know, you've read really everything that's been published on after-death communication, both um, the the um, studies that she used in her dissertation and every book that had been written. And I said, if someone came up to you and said, I'm really interested in this subject, but I have limited time. If I were going to read only one book about ADC, what would it be? And she, her answer was, uh, Bill Guggenheim and Judy Guggenheim's book, Hello from Heaven. Um, they did a really good study, despite the kind of flaky title, you know, Hello from Heaven. Um, they did a really good study of uh, thousands of people who'd had after-death communication, spontaneous after-death communication experiences, and they categorized them into types of experiences. And and their, uh, the book is just thick with uh, the people's actual narratives of their ADCs. So it's really, really well done and and gives uh, people, like one of my favorite um, passages or or, um, cases from their book is a woman who her father had died like 10 years before, and one day she's driving home from work and she reaches this one intersection and um, at a stop sign and she hears her father's voice say, turn right, right here, right now. And she's so (laughs) shocked by this. She turns right and she's driving and then she's thinking, well, how am I going to get home now? So she takes this long, circuitous route home and she arrives at home and takes off her coat and pours herself a glass of wine and turns on the TV, and there's breaking news that the bridge that she normally crosses on her way home from work had failed, and before um, it, people could be stopped, three or four cars had gone into this ravine and people had died. If she had taken her normal route home, she likely would have been one of those people. So her father, in effect, warned her away from her own um, potential death. And so it's a good example of how ADCs can occur to people. She wasn't bereaved anymore. He died 10 years before, and she was, you know, grief never ends, but she wasn't in the depths of it. Um, But it was um, a protective after-death communication. So that's uh, one of the more dramatic ones, but uh, it's really a great book, Hello from Heaven. And that, too, is referenced on the fact sheet. People, um, I understand you have a website associated with your show here. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to post the link, and people can go there and download it. And and without asking for permission, uh, anyone can use it for purposes of uh, education or uh, medical purposes. And, of course, for, you know, just a personal copy for personal use. I'm sure they'll find that fascinating. <clears throat> yeah. Talking about uh, um, talking about the books, I want you to reference a little bit of the telephone calls from the dad because mm-hmm. we talked about that earlier. But since we're talking about, and these are two books that I actually went on and purchased, mm-hmm. and I find find them fascinating. 
Um, could yeah. you talk a little bit about that one, please? Sure. Well, what uh, Callum Cooper, there had been a previous book written on this, and Callum Cooper uh, did a little more research and updated the findings. So um, essentially, uh, some people experience telephone calls from their um, deceased loved one. And it can take any of a number of forms, uh, including the, um, like a common form is that the telephone rings, the person picks up, and, the, and they hear their deceased loved one say like, hello, or um, say the, the living person's name. And um, and there might be like static then, and then the the connection is lost. And now in days of caller ID, um, some I know one person who got uh, the caller ID was zero 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 zero, and when she called the telephone company, they said that that was impossible. And it's kind of like, well, I don't know what to tell you. It happened. And um, one of the interesting things is that these experiences even occur with telephones that are not connected or that have been broken and not functioning for um, some period of time. And so it's kind of like, you know, it doesn't, um, it doesn't even require a functioning telephone. Um, a really interesting thing happened. Uh, I, I teach counseling at the University of North Texas, and one of my then doctoral students, now Dr. Eric Price, he's on faculty in a counseling program in California. And um, But while he was a student with us, one day he uh, came to my office and he said, do you have a few minutes? I, I want to show you something. And so we, we went into a room, and he had been working on the um, uh, a book review of this book, Telephone Calls from the Dead, for the Journal of Near-Death Studies, for which I'm editor. And um, he also, Eric, is a play therapist, so he works, he does counseling with children ages 2 to 10 in a playroom. So he had his videotape of his play session with this boy who I think he was about eight years old and this boy's father had died um, and and the boy at, at the, this point in this play session was playing in the sandbox and um, he's playing and making a couple of comments and Eric is responding and suddenly this very audible buzzing noise comes in at, uh, like in a matter of two seconds it starts really low and then gets really loud and the boy says to Eric, um, do you hear that? And Eric says, yes, you know, I do. And, and he says, what are you hearing? And the boy says, well, this buzzing noise. And Eric's like, yeah, I do hear that. And he said, what do you think that is? And Eric says, you know, I don't know. And so the boy plays on a little bit, and then he's like, he's really bugged by this. So he gets out of the sandbox, and he goes over to the shelves of toys, and he starts picking up one toy after another, putting it to his ear and shaking his head, no, that's not it. Finally, he gets to the cash register, the toy cash register, and the moment that he presses the button to open the, the drawer, the buzzing stops. Inside the drawer is a toy telephone. It's just a, a toy cell phone. It's not a, even a real one. And, he, um, and he, he points to it and nods like, this is what was making the noise. And Eric nods, 
and then he closes the um, the drawer and goes back to playing in the sandbox again, and he says to Eric, that was really weird. And Eric said, yeah, that was weird. And so Eric had the sense that it was this boy's father um, activating the toy cell phone to uh, communicate his presence. But the boy himself didn't have the sense that it was a message from his father. And so true to the philosophy of play therapy, Eric didn't introduce the idea um, there. But he, but he wanted me to see that um, it appeared that the boy's father had communicated in a way that Eric would recognize because Eric was writing this book review on this very kind of phenomenon. So it was just really interesting. And yeah, um, yeah and and people do have these experiences with um, telephones and and other electronic devices as I mentioned before. Yeah. Like light bulbs uh, blinking. Exactly. I'm glad you said that because one of the common things is flickering lights. Um I just finished reading a book by a man whose wife died, and he had numerous after-death communication experiences with her that began with flickering lights in their dining room that had never flickered before her death. And the first night he went in there to eat dinner, the lights were flickering, and he had the definite sense that it was her uh, trying to communicate with him. And indeed, um, then the communications increased and and um, in both frequency and uh, nature, uh, he actually had auditory and I think it's some a, a visual um, ADC with her eventually, uh, and and uh, uh, tactile where he felt her touch and felt her hug him from behind, lying in bed and that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, the the flickering lights is a real common um, means of communication. Um, and wouldn't you say one of another uh, ways of the communication is um, <clears throat> uh, dreams? Yes, I'm so glad you said that because uh, prob- maybe I think the two most common circumstances are um, the person having uh, a uh, a felt sense of the presence without any sensory, and this could be this is usually while the person's awake, but also um, sleep ADCs. Now, I'm being very purposeful in not calling them dream ADCs, even though in the literature they're often referred to that way, because when people have these experiences, they almost always are adamant that even though they were asleep, they were not dreaming. The experience did not have the same quality as uh, dreams. They, They don't, they're not those irrational, you know, crazy kind of REM dreams. They are, they feel like experiences of very real connection with the deceased. And um, I had an experience like this uh, after my father died. Um, He had had Alzheimer's. And uh, the last time I saw him, he didn't even recognize who I was. He still had his personality, but he didn't recognize us kids. The three of us were all there. And um, so uh, after he died, I was asleep one night, and I had this experience of seeing him 
sitting at a table with a plate of food in front of him, lifting a fork of food and pausing and then looking at me and just conveying this absolute, eternal, unconditional love. And um, and this it there, there's a lot more than I'll go into detail here, but it was very um, symbolic of his uh, rejuvenating in death, his uh, regaining his memory. He clearly recognized who I was in this experience and um, and was very comforting to me in, again, ways that I, I won't go into uh, for the purposes of our show here. But um, so it, it was, uh, and unlike, uh, these are these experiences are distinguishable from dreams, not only in their subjective quality, but also I did not awaken during or after the experience. I remembered it the following morning that it occurred during the middle of the night. And as you know, that's not how dreams function. We, it, research shows that we have to either awaken while the dream is happening or within about 20 seconds of it ending. Otherwise, we don't remember it at all. And if we, even if we do remember it, it fades from memory, whereas this memory of this experience is just vivid in my mind. Now this is more than 10 years later. And so, um, so, th- so these are not actually dreams. They're ADCs that occur while we're asleep. And it's possible that we are more open, you know, that the veil, as you referred to it, is a little thinner for us while we're asleep and and uh, the deceased are able to connect with us at that time more easily than when we're awake and, and distracted by, you know, all the distractions of the material world. Yeah, that that's true. How about meditation? Can, yes, do you think and people they can have occur, that through meditation? Yes, yes, they can occur in all states of consciousness, waking, sleeping, meditation. Um, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes people do have spontaneous experiences of after-death communication while they're meditating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want you to talk about um, the yellow bubbles. Yes, well, um, when my uh, co-author, Stavi Avramidis, and I were writing the book, Near-Death Experiences While Drowning, we came up across this case from the, um, this, was, this is actually at the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website, that's N-D-E-R-F, and it's, um, it, it's a story of after-death communication, but it's, it was submitted by someone who'd had a near-death experience. And so <clears throat> it's actually an example of spontaneous mediumship. Um, the person, the near-death experiencer, had had her NDE some years before, and then subsequently her brother-in-law died. And so one day she's on the phone with her sister, uh, the widow, and they're talking about things. And the near-death experiencer, as they're talking, she's gazing into her living room, and suddenly her living room washes yellow. And then the yellow disappears, and the living room is filled with bubbles. And then the bubbles disappear, and it washes yellow. And then the bubbles and the yellow. And now she's really distracted. So she interrupts her sister and says, I'm sorry, I'm not able to listen to what you're saying because I'm having this weird experience. I'm looking in the living room. It's washing yellow, and then it's filled with bubbles. And her sister goes, and 
and the end of ear says, what? And the sister says, well, a few months before, let's say her husband's name was Ralph, died, um, we were watching the movie Houdini. And while the commercials were on, we muted the TV and we were talking about the movie. And, and you know, Houdini uh, had always wanted to have communication with his deceased mother and never succeeded. And uh, Ralph said to his wife, um, you know, I don't believe in this afterlife stuff. And the wife said, well, you know, who knows? And, and she said, why don't we create a pact and we'll come up with a secret message that whoever dies first will try to convey to the other person to let them know that um, the quote-unquote deceased person is really just disembodied. And so guess what they agreed on as their secret message? Yellow bubbles. And so here was the NDEer seeing the yellow and the bubbles while she's talking to the widow and it clearly was a message from the deceased brother-in-law to the sister, the widow, um, letting her know via the NDEer, the spontaneous medium, that the brother-in-law continued to exist. That's fascinating. <clears throat> yeah, it's a great. It's an example of what is in the in the near death and and transpersonal literature is called veridical experiences veridical yeah veridical like, shared right shared. yeah well yes. um not not exactly shared but uh, verified so that what the what the experiencer sees is verified as accurate and yet what they saw was something that they couldn't have known from their own sensory or rational processes and so here the NDEer had no idea that there had even been a pact between her sister and her sister's husband. But it turned out that the sister verified that what the NDEer saw was, was accurate. And so, um, and so you do bring up an important point that <clears throat> sometimes these experiences are shared. Usually they're experienced in isolation, but sometimes they are shared. And when they're shared, they, they still may or may not be veridical because what people experience together still might not be provable. But um, an example of a veridical near-death experience is from the book The Self Does Not Die, which is a compilation of over a hundred cases of confirmed paranormal phenomena related to near-death experiences. So that's another book that I highly recommend to your listeners who are interested in this kind of subject. Um, there's a case in there where a woman was um, in surgery and she unexpectedly went into cardiac arrest and the surgeons were able to resuscitate her and of course she never during this process regained consciousness or anything but they were resuscitated her completed the surgery and then later when she uh, post op she regained consciousness she's sitting up in bed her surgeon comes to check on her and she says i know that i died during the surgery and he's like what and she said i was out of my body and i watched the resuscitation procedure and she explained she described 
accurately exactly what everybody had done during the resuscitation procedure, which just amazed him. But then she said, you know, I was actually above the ceiling, looking down through the ceiling, and I also could see into the adjacent operating room where they were amputating a man's leg. And when they finished, they put the amputated leg in a bright yellow plastic bag to dispose of it. And his and her surgeon is like, what? And and he says, you know, I don't even know what's going on in the other operating rooms of the hospital. But he left her, he went back and looked at the hospital records and found that, in fact, a few hours before, while he was doing the surgery on her, in the next operating room, they were amputating a man's leg. And he'd never been in that operating room before. So he went and poked his head inside, and there he saw the bright yellow um, disposal bags that they use for the amputated parts. How could she have known this unless she actually was out of her body and you know, seeing what she said she saw? Because it wasn't anything she directly saw or could have um, extrapolated, you know, rationally from anything, and it wasn't even anything he knew about. And so it's um, so the the veridical, the verified aspect lends credibility to other near death experiencers that they're they're not just like dreams or hallucinations, even though again they do not have the characteristics of those phenomena. Um, they're they. Um, veridical perception indicates that they may not be imaginary. So when there are veridical after-death communication experiences like the yellow bubble, yellow bubbles, and an experience that I had, um, they lend credibility that um, as much as the experiences feel absolutely real, maybe they are objectively verifiable in some cases, which lends credibility to their objective reality <clears throat> and you also had one not you but concerning your cousin david and your uncle ray yes with that's the hourglass right, right. can you talk a little yeah. bit about that please sure sure so i published this story in uh, a book called chicken soup for the soul messages from heaven if anybody wants to read the account um more thoroughly but um I had gone up to Chicago to learn the induced after-death communication counseling technique, and I brought three of my graduate students with me. So when we got back here to the Dallas area, we met weekly for a few months to practice on each other before we let ourselves loose on our clients. So one day we were practicing, and Jenny, the same person who did the ADC um, dissertation, was guiding me. And um, we'd done this many times before uh, practicing on each other, so I was getting kind of low on my listful that I wanted to contact. And I thought of my beloved cousin David, who had died shortly after returning from the Vietnam War back in the 70s. And um, so I decided that I wanted to contact him. I had some questions for him, which actually became irrelevant once I saw him, but um uh, so we, we did the technique. She guided me in the technique. I closed my eyes, and there in my mind's eye was David. He was um, in his mid-20s, um, about the age when he died, uh, looking healthy and happy and whole. And he had d- died in a 
car accident where a train hit the car. So, you know, physically his body was mangled, but um, here he appeared absolutely in the, in the prime of health. And um, all he did, just like with my father, he just looked at me. And in that look was conveyed this absolute, eternal, unconditional love. And it was just wonderful, a, a wonderful experience. Lasted maybe 30 or 40 seconds, and suddenly his father, my Uncle Ray, who had died more recently, um, elbowed his way. Literally, he, he elbowed David back and and stood in front of him and held out his hand and in his hand was an hourglass it was clear glass uh, meant to sit on a table but it didn't have any sand in it which was really odd and so i but and i knew without there being any explicit message that he wanted me to contact my um Aunt Norma, his wife, who was still alive, and tell her that I had seen him and about this hourglass. And so I, I just did not understand. And so I, in my mind's eye, I tried to zoom in to see the hourglass more closely. And when I did, it would disappear. And I'd zoom back and it would reappear. And I'd try to get around and look at it from another angle and it would disappear. And then I'd go back to my original location. It would reappear. It's like, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to call Norma and tell her about. And so I'm, I open my eyes. I tell Jenny what I'm experiencing. And I'm like, I, I was never close to my Aunt Norma. I think I was in her house once. I, I remember it because David and I had a nice conversation um, in, in the basement, at, at, in a, a Christmas party that was happening in the basement. And um, so I don't remember their house. I don't, and and I I was never close to her. Uh, she's a really good person, but kind of a loud person. And so I was, I was kind of a quiet um, child and a little put off by her. So I, I just never warmed up to her. Um, but um, and and the last time I'd communicated with her was when Ray died um, a few years before I sent her a card, a condolence card. And before that, it's probably been over 30 years since I'd talked with her. And so um, so I was really reluctant to just call her up and say, you know, I saw Ray and he wanted me to tell you about an hourglass. I don't know. And so anyway, Longer story shorter, I did end up calling her and um, told her what I'd experienced. And I ended by saying, you know, I have no idea what this is about. And she said, oh, I know exactly what it is. And I said, you do? And she said, yeah. She said, I'm looking at them right now. And I said, them? And she said, yeah. She said, when I was a little girl, we used to go visit my grandmother, and I was bored. And one of the things my grandmother had on an end table with a glass shelf, she kept two cut crystal vases. And I would lie on the floor, scoot under the shelf, and watch the sun glint through these these vases. It was just beautiful, you know, seeing all the colors of the rainbows, kind of like looking through a kaleidoscope sort of thing. And she said it would entertain me for, you know, half hour anyway. So when my grandmother died, the the only thing I wanted from her estate was those two cut crystal vases. She said, I'm looking at them right now. They're on my dining room table. And she said, what Ray knew is if we like woke up in the middle of the night and the house was on fire and we had to 
quick run out of the house, I would stop and grab those vases on my way out because they're so precious to me. And she said the thing is that they're shaped differently, the two of them, but they're both like an hourglass, wide at the top, then they get narrow, they're wide at the bottom, clear glass, sit on a table, obviously no sand inside. She said Ray knew that that shape of the hourglass would, you know, clearly be a, a um, message about these vases. And she said, nothing you could have told me would convince me more that Ray continues to exist and that we'll be reunited when I die. And so when my Aunt Norma passed, I called my cousin and who knew about this um, this experience and we commiserated about how we knew for sure that Ray and Norma are together now. So, again, it was a veridical experience in that I didn't have any idea what the hourglass meant, but um, but Norma recognized it immediately, and it had tremendous personal meaning for her. So that's a veridical ADC. That's a wonderful story. Oh, thank you. I, no, I agree. It, it just it gives me it warms my heart and gives me chills uh, all at the same time. <laughs> it's I just find it fat. I I love the stories. They're just so fascinating. And you know, how can you disprove something like that? Yeah. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You just can't. Just, thank you for sharing that because I know that's personal, and sometimes yeah. I like to get personal, but but I well, am going to put you. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that as much as it's personal, I I did have the sense that it was also meant for public consumption in a way to answer exactly this question of the, uh, you know, I feel like my family members are supporting me in my work. And so, um, so I think, I think they're, the experience is meaningful on a lot of levels. Yeah. I think so, too. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to put you on the spot with this question because I okay. always like to ask um, my guest, when you look back at your career and you've had a fascinating career and a fascinating journey, who inspired you the most? Oh, gosh, that's really hard. But, you know, I'll tell you, I think it was my father because he was a very uh, we had a, a special you know connection and he was a very um stable uh thoughtful uh it meaning um he would think a lot about things and he he was a, a Lutheran a Christian but he also had recurring dreams of a past life in Paris during the French Revolution. Um, he And he would occasionally come to the breakfast table and say, I had that dream again, you know, where he's back in the French Revolution experiencing a battle. And, um, and so he was open to these kinds of phenomena. Well, when I was, a, I think, a sophomore in college, uh, undergraduate work, I was home one summer, and he gave me a book to read that he had read called The Great Soul Trial. And it's by Robert Fuller, 
it's probably like around 1970-ish uh, publication. <clears throat> and it's a story, the true story, of a reclusive miner from Arizona who disappeared. And when the state of Arizona opened his safe deposit box, they found several hundred thousand dollars. This was back in like the late 50s, uh, which was a lot more money than it, than it is now and a little piece of paper on which he'd written that he wanted the money used for research on the survival of the human soul after death. So the state of Arizona published a, a little notice that they had this, and they thought nobody would see it, and they'd just get to keep the money. But to their surprise, over 100 individuals and, and um, entities came forward to claim the money. So the state of Arizona had to actually put on a trial where a judge heard each of these people explain how they would use James Kidd's bequest. And um, and so the book is, a lot of it is the transcriptions from the, um, from the trial testimony. And we heard um, or read <laughs> the... Um, research director from the uh, the American Society for Psychical Research and the research director from the Psychical Research Foundation and the research director from the Barrow Neurological Institute all describing how they would use the, the kid bequest. So <clears throat> um, the, it was a very influential book in that it laid the foundation for me to consider how bona fide research might be conducted into the question of the survival of the human soul after death. So I would say that my father and, and um, this book were very, uh, were very pivotal. And then, of course, later Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life, and um, yeah, and then life you know, after life. Yes, life after life. The 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 book that really um, formally opened the field of near death studies. Near death experiences had been reported in the uh, professional literature prior to that book, but at that point there was no name for them. And he coined the term near death experience in his book, uh, 1975 book, Life After Life, and um, and that is what really formally opened the field of near-death studies that has now been going on for 40 years. Um, when I um, <clears throat> had my near-death, people didn't talk about it. So I was a, yeah. a senior in college, and I had this out-of-the-box philosophy professor. Really, hmm. he was something. And he he held up the book, and he said, I want you all to read this book, Life After hmm. Life by Dr. Raymond Moody. Well, Jan, you know, I read the book, and I Mm. thought, this all makes sense, these things that were happening to me. I couldn't wear a watch. I had, you know, um, spirit connection, whatever. Um, Things would happen. And I I went home to my mother, and I said, did I have a near-death experience um, when I was five? Because I was having my tonsils out. And she said, yes. And Mm. I said, why didn't you ever tell me that? She said, because... The doctors told me never to talk about it with you. Oh, wow. So, mm. you know, here I am, a senior in college, and that's when I found out after reading that book that I actually yeah. had an NDE. And it all, yeah. then everything just 
the the pieces of the puzzle just started coming together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so helpful. A lot of, again, as you said, especially when you were five, um, these phenomena were not well known. But even now, people have the experience, and, and despite the fact that there's been a lot of coverage in the media and so forth, um, people don't connect that uh, what they had was a near-death experience. But once they do, and, you know, you mentioned not being able to wear a watch. No, <clears throat> I can't. The, the, yeah, the electromagnetic after effects are the ones that, people um, are often uh, near-death experiencers don't connect that all the electronic problems they're having started after their NDE. And once they learn about that, they're like, that's, you know, like you said, big puzzle piece fitting into place, you know. <clears throat> oh, my gosh, that's why I can't wear a watch. That's why when I walk in the room, my boyfriend complains that the only when I'm in the room does the televo- television volume go up and down and the, the channels flip and nobody's even touching the the remote. Right. And, you know, things, uh, lights flicker, light bulbs explode. Um, explode. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, electronic devices malfunction. And, um, and it, it seems the NDE seems to have um, had some effect on the uh, electromagnetic um, field around the near-death experiencer such that it, it affects other people. And it, it, that might be connected to the also the healing abilities that many NDEers talk about having, that they, they feel a, an energy um, that they're able to use for healing purposes. So, um, yeah, so it's all very fascinating. But I think your experience is very... Um, unfortunately very all too common that uh, people stumble upon uh, literature about near-death experience and only then realize that that's what happened to them and then it makes sense of so much. Yeah. Well, it certainly changed my life, the way I looked at it after I read his book. And actually, uh, Dr. Moody actually came to the church and did a presentation here. Uh Uh-huh, Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because That's he uh, after reading that, I mean it's just like I said all the pieces of the puzzle started mm-hmm. to come together. Yeah. Well, you know, we do have a call and we're going to try this and see what happens. They've been on the line for a while. So, let's see what happens here, Jan. Okay. Hi, you're on the air. May I have a name? Well, I don't think we're going to get anything there, Jan. Yeah, that's too bad. Hi, you're on the air. May I have a name? Hi, my name is Lisa. Hi, Lisa. How are you this morning? Good. I was just listening in and enjoying did you have any questions or any comments that you wanted to make? Um, I've never had such an experience, so I don't really have anything to offer. Okay. I was well, actually, actually, you're. I'm so glad you said that <laughs> because there's a phenomenon that I call ADC envy, and that's where um, someone 
who was close to a deceased person would love to hear from them, but they haven't. And it might be another family member or friend who hears from them. And the the person who wants to hear from the deceased um, feels envious and maybe even resentful. Like, why, you know, I was closer to this deceased person than the person with whom the deceased person is communicating. How come I'm not getting the messages? And there actually are a couple of answers to that question. Um, The closer we are to a disembodied person, the the more we're likely to be feeling uh, intense emotions, especially grief. And the more we're experiencing intense emotions, the more that actually interferes with our ability to to have this experience. And so a lot of times a disembodied person can more easily communicate with someone with a little more emotional distance than um, than the, the person with whom they're emotionally closest. Um, and so um, the when when we're doing induced after-death communication when we're trying to facilitate the experience in counseling, we, um, a, a big part of the process is helping the person get to a, um, a state of emotional equanimity, um, kind of evenness and an openness uh, without grasping. So an invitation, an intention, but not an intense grasping after the experience. And, and that seems to be the state of mind that facilitates the experience more. And so, um, so I, I actually am glad that you mentioned that because I think that that's an important phenomenon that, is, that people often um, encounter. I actually had a guy who was a boyfriend who stayed close to the family call me and tell me he had a visitation from my mother. Yeah, exactly. And I was was like, well, how come I didn't get it? Exactly. That usually happens. Yeah, it does. It often often happens that way. And so, yeah, so so, uh, my, my answer actually is, um, to try to get beyond the fact that the disembodied person didn't contact you directly and appreciate that they are so intent on getting a message to you that they found whoever they could to communicate and uh, that it really it really is um, their intention to connect with you and, and let you know that there exists there that they exist, that they're in a state of well-being, that they still um, love you and are aware of you, um, even if you aren't aware of them. Beautiful. Yeah. Did that help you this morning? Yes, it did. Thank you so much. You're Thank you very for welcome. I'm smiling now instead of feeling slighted. Oh, <laughs> See what you did, Jan? See? See the powers you have, Jan? Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Thank you very much. Beautiful New Year, girls. You too. Yeah, that was just perfect. Yeah, it was just perfect. Just perfect. You know, there's, um, uh, we talked about veridical perception and, uh, and that's important for some mediums who call themselves evidential mediums. 
And uh, one such person is Suzanne Giesman, who has presented a few times at the International Association for Near-Death Studies Conference. The last yeah, time, I know er- Suzanne, yeah. Oh, good, good. Mm-hmm. And the last time in her 2017 uh, presentation, she told this story that she did a sitting for a young woman whose father had passed. And uh, at the beginning, the very first thing that Suzanne got was uh, shrimp, you know, like you eat. And right. Suzanne says, um, you know, does shrimp have any special thing in your relationship with your father? And, and the woman's like, no, you know, and it, she just can't. And Suzanne says, being very insistent, the shrimp, the shrimp. And the daughter's like, I don't get this. So anyway, they decide, okay, so they got the message, move on. And then Suzanne goes on to tell her one thing after another that she does recognize. So she goes home, she calls her mother, and she tells her about the reading. And she's telling her about all the things that Suzanne got that um, that the daughter and, in many cases, the mother also recognizes as evidential that it really is him communicating uh, from the beyond. And then the daughter remembers, she said, oh, the weirdest thing at the beginning was this one thing that just made no sense to me. He, he was very insistent about shrimp. And the mother goes, oh, and the daughter says, what? And the mother says, well, yesterday I was cleaning out the freezer in the garage, and I got to the bottom, and there was this bag of shrimp that had probably been there for a couple of years. And so I brought it in. I cooked it up, meaning to eat some of it, you know, and put some in the refrigerator for later. And she said, they were so good, I ate the whole bag. Oh, my word. See what I mean? They're around. They I know what's going on. They're I around. know, right? They do. Yeah. So definitely um, around. Yeah. So that was another, that was a veridical um, mediumship. And that happens more often when you're doing mediumship, that they'll want the loved ones to know that they are around and see Mm -hmm. little things that they're doing. You know what I'm saying? Yes, they do. They do. Um, Yeah. Let's see if we can get this other call. Hold on a second. Okay. Welcome. Thanks for calling. Okay, well, well, we couldn't get that other call, but we did have a nice little call there, and I think we put a smile on somebody's face today. Yes, I agree. Yeah, Um, that was was an inspired uh, phone call. I I don't think she even realized what she was after, and somehow we stumbled into, you know, or were guided into um, getting exactly what she needed. That's that's uh, that's wonderful. I I look at you as being one of the pioneers of NDs and of ADCs. I just want mm-hmm. you to know that that you do oh, this you, work. You really do, and there's yeah. you're just really good. You bring out so so many inspiring things to help Thank people you so much. on their journey. And yeah, so, well, I feel I feel like I'm in a very privileged position. So thank you. You're quite welcome. And this will conclude our show. And we are so glad that you came a second time to share your precious time with us. Thank you very much. You're so welcome, Karen. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye now. That concludes our show for today. 
And our next show will be on January 21st, 2018 at 7 p.m. Our guest will be Reverend Sharon Stubas. Sharon has trained and worked as a spiritualist minister, speaking and doing mediumship and healing beginning in 1998, holding a degree in education. Sharon uses her background and understanding of teaching techniques in her classes, seminars, and now in the ongoing education program of intuitive and mediumistic development through the Inner Spiritual Center, which she is co-founder and co-director of. Along with her private readings and sittings, Sharon is an advocate of structured quality and integrity in the teaching and learning of mediumship so that each individual can achieve their own potential. Currently working, teaching, and demonstrating in New Jersey, as well as different areas of the United States and Switzerland. Sharon is also on the teaching facility of Fellowships of the Spirit in Casadega, New York. And remember, all true seekers out there, take care. And may you always be the light that helps others see. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.